G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcast or your generic fruit-based device, whatever device you have to uh, follow us. Um, many thanks for listening and many thanks for subscribing. We've had a couple of reviews since the uh, last podcast here. Just like to, to thank Phil Franklin um, that comments sort of on point listening to the since I graduated generally really well pitched, informative and applicable for general practice. I recommend to a vet 20 years plus out of uni who also found the vet really interesting. So good for people at all stages in vet life. So thank you very much for that, Phil. Uh, and the Bristol vet student said fantastic podcast. I seem to be spending a lot of time driving to and from EMS. Yeah, sorry about that. Hobbies and home. So really enjoy listening to the podcast while I'm traveling. Good level of information and relevant. The only thing I can say is I'd like to hear more about farm spe species topics. Well, we'll try and help you out there, Bristol Vet Student. Um, and thank you for the time for creating these podcasts. Well, thank you very much for, for listening. Um, and thank you very much for writing reviews because it really does help um, our metrics and it helps getting this information out to people who want to listen to it as well. So please don't forget to uh, ask your friends um, to uh, to subscribe and, and have a listen and and, uh, and let us know sort of what they um, what they think. Um, so today uh, I'm uh, fortunate enough to be joined in the studio. There's no no Brian here on the uh, on the whistles and faders, so uh, so it's just just myself. So apologies for the audio, but I, I believe I'm getting better. Um, but anyway, we're joined in the studio by Dave Sajic, who's our lecturer in veterinary orthopaedics here at the RVC. So thank you very much, Dave, for for coming along. Afternoon. Afternoon, um, and uh, and what we thought we'd uh, we'd talk about, or what what uh, what I, I convinced uh, uh, Dr. Sajik to uh, to talk about was regarding um, uh, stifle disease in in dogs, because I, I think uh, there's there's always uh, things to to consider and, and think about. So so um, so we're just going to going to talk to Dave about a, a few questions that that uh, I have necessarily about sort of stifle disease in general. So and 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 partly from my time when uh, when I was in general practice as well. So, um, so can I ask sort of first, Dave, uh, about um, diagnosing? Say, I suppose what we're normally talking about is sort of cruciate disease. Is, mm. is that is that the predominant sort of form of, of stifle issues in dogs, or, or is there anything else sort of creeping up? Uh, no, absolutely. So, cruciate disease is the number one cause of pelvic limb lameness in dogs, um, and yeah, it therefore forms the the mainstay of a lot of the orthopedic work we do, particularly in in, uh, in the Royal Veterinary College. So the number one cause that we will see of discomfort coming from the stifle is, as, as you said, crucial ligament rupture. Uh, but we also see patella luxation. Um, and then depending on the segment of the patient, we also get conditions like OCD uh, creeping in and some more medical conditions. You occasionally get an immune mediated process going on within the stifle. Uh, but by far, crucial ligament rupture is the number one uh, that we think of when we talk about common uh, knee pathologies. So. And, and are these always sort of acute in presentation, though? So, so are, are you going to get people that are acutely lame or the dog sort of starts running and then hopping on the leg, or does it depend on maybe the size of the, of the patient that you see? So I suppose the stark contrast in uh, between humans and canines in particular in the, the pathogenesis of crucial ligament rupture is the, the time frame. Um, so you and I will have hopefully healthy crucial ligaments. We will then do typically sport or something that involves putting our, our ligament through a, a, a super physiological force, so something that the ligament can't withstand and it either snaps or pulls out the bone. And that's why we would have a reconstructive surgery or a replacement surgery. Now, unfortunately in dogs, the, the pathogenesis, pathogenesis is more of a degenerative process. So over time, the ligament frays, degenerates, becomes weaker. Mm -hmm. The fibers, the fibers either um, 
stretch or more commonly snap and we get a progressive lameness with that so you may see a dog present to yourselves with a, an acute appearing onset of lameness but when you talk to the owners often the dog's had a bit of stiffness for a period of time or has, has had the occasional flare-up of lameness that settled down with anti-inflammatories and the dog's gone back to being able to exercise fairly normally and that's just this gradual onset of progressive rupture of the ligament um, so you'll, you'll see both in practice the, the acute onsets where the dog's apparently been fine up until now it's run it's twisted it's landed awkwardly and there's the perception that it's, it's ruptured acutely but often there is this underlying slow degeneration that pre precedes so when you're in practice days so you do the, and i suppose it's different to the cases that you see now when people have you know, referred them for mm -hmm. some stifle disease process so do you, do you think that it's always a good idea to or obviously a good idea to examine the knee but do you go about that in a, a particular way um each each time and and do you look at both the presumed affected knee and the contralateral side and all the all the joints as well yeah so i think when i was in practice and also now the first thing we we, we do for any lameness evaluation is a full physical examination so we 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 cover the bases in terms of the systemic health, so a full physical examination first, uh, time permitting, and then we come to focus on the, the area of discomfort, so in the stifle. And what we'll be looking for on physical examination for stifle um, disease is discomfort or manipulation, um, instability, um, and then any muscle wastage or anything like that, that would suggest chronicity of, of, of the injury. Um, a common finding you'll get with manipulation of the stifle in a cruciate is on full extension. These dogs will appear uncomfortable, and that's often the only time that they'll, they'll show discomfort in the consultation room unless the knee is very painful and unstable. Um, that combined with uh, the formation of medial buttress, so a firm swelling on the inner aspect of the stifle, um, you can palpate stifle effusion either side of the patella tendon, all of those would lead us down the, the, su the suspicion of a, a knee pathology, most likely cruciate in that, that uh, situation. If you were to examine the patient and feel the patella luxating or be able to um, elicit luxation, then obviously that is something to be considered um, but we'll always evaluate the full limb uh, with any part of the um, physical examination because we don't want to go down the, the wrong road if you like um, so it's very easy to, to pick up a, a lameness in a hind limb uh, if it's an obvious one and then have a few areas of discomfort on the examination and you need to rule out um, other causes of lameness before we start wielding a scalpel so and do you uh, see are there some things that are a bit confounding or confusing so could you have some uh, laxity in your you know some patella um, subluxation or luxation as well as a, a damage to your cruciate and yeah yeah it's, it's not uncommon um, usually with a, a, a cruciate there'll be a degree of instability so uh, with checking our cranial draw or tibial thrust manipulations um, we'll get instability and or um, cranial translocate or cranial subluxation, sorry, of the tibia relative to the femur on, uh, when we put pressure on, on the stifle. Um, and that is the, the hallmark of crucial ligament disease and um, rupture, is that unusual cranial cord movement of the tibia that should not be present. Uh, the only exceptions to that would be in very, very uh, young animals, um, and they do have puppy draw, in inverted commas, but what you'll have there is um, cranial 
translation of the tibia with a sudden stop point as the ligament pulls taut. Um, you don't get that sudden stop with a pathological rupture in older animals. So that's the big different difference. Can you can you always get that, or can can dogs' muscles contract enough to to hold the tibia in place? Do they have to be relaxed or sedated? Or it's much much easier with sedated and relaxed animals. Um, with the best will in the world, there's no way my forearms are stronger than a, a bull mastiff's hind limbs. So if they want to hold their knees still, they will try to do so because unfortunately eliciting cranial draw does cause some discomfort to the patient um, so I would combine a conscious examination in the consultation room with an examination under sedation for example when I'm taking x-rays to confirm um, my measurements for surgery or looking for any other disease processes going on so I'd always combine a conscious with a, a sedated examination. And with uh, with um, cruise ships with disease in general, do, do contralateral ligaments also go as, as well, or does it really depend on the nature of the injury? So the the causal factors in cruise ship ligament disease haven't been um, fully um, cause and effect linked. Um, we have well, we know that certain breeds are predisposed, certain lifestyles are predisposed, body weight is a big factor. So a lot of these factors are common between the, the left and the right leg. So the ligaments on one side, if they're starting to go, the chances are the ligament on the other side has been put under a similar pressure, has a similar genetic makeup, etc. That means that rupture is a possibility on the other side. And it's not uncommon for us to get dogs with instability bilaterally, but presented with a, a one-legged lameness, uh, or unilateral lameness, sorry because one side is more unstable or the dog is more uncomfortable on that side. You have to have one good leg to limp on, effectively. Um, so we, we will occasionally get a, a referral for a dog that's off its back legs because he's blown both his cruciates, and that is obviously a, a more tricky situation to be dealing with. I think I do remember uh, sending one thing to a, to a referral surgeon and for a, say, a right uh, um, stifle problem that I suspected was cruciate, and they said... Yeah, that's that's great, Dom. But we operated on the left one because uh, that was worse. <laughs> yep, I think it, it's, and, and we would base our decision as to which side to do first on which side the patient is more uncomfortable with. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think it was more that I didn't even notice that the left one was was gone as well. But you know, <clears throat> but but there you go. Um, okay, so 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 that's great. So you mentioned something about uh, about the size of the of the patient mm -hmm. as well. So are, are there certain um, breeds or confirmations that have more of an issue with their stifle that we know about, or or is it just just more overweightness rather than bigger dogs? So weight definitely plays a big role in the the rupture of the cruciate. So obese dogs are are going to be more at risk of, of tearing the cruciates because there's more force being put through these ligaments as they're degenerating. We know that some breeds are predisposed, so bigger dogs, Labradors, German Shepherds, um, Staffies, that sort of dog are, we know are predisposed. But we also know that some smaller dogs are predisposed, your Westies, um, and th those predispos predispositions will encompass some genetic factors, bone morphology um, and lifestyle as well. So they're I suppose the only breed that we know is very well, one of the breeds we know is very unlikely to, to have a cruciate rupture is a greyhound, um, and that they're sort of the, the standalone breed that we very very rarely see uh, any cruciate rupture in. If we do, it is probably that one true traumatic rupture um, as opposed to the degenerative process that we see. Okay, so it's, it's it's skiing time at the at the moment, Dave, and uh, and I'm not sure a number of our friends, in fact, we're going skiing a bit uh, later later mm -hmm. in a in a couple of weeks. But um, uh, if if people damage their cruciates, they normally sort of go for an MRI rather than sort of necessarily sticking needles in joints or, or doing anything else. So so is is that ideally where where we should go, or or is it worth taking radiographs? Is it worth using ultrasound, or, or what do we 
well, what do we know about diagnostic imaging with, with dogs? So in terms of what is possible, absolutely. We can MRI stifles to diagnose crucial ligament rupture, uh, meniscal pathology, uh, and that side of things. Um, it's certainly not commonly done, or certainly not, not here at the RVC. And I think one of the big factors in that is that the cost of the MRI scan. Um, because MRI has only recently become available in the veterinary field in terms of compared to the human uh, field, we are... I think we're lagging behind, but I think we're, we've got round the fact of not needing an MRI uh, to diagnose this because we've got very good at eliciting cranial draw, tibial thrust. Um, we know what to look for on our x-rays, which are obviously far cheaper, far more readily available. Um, and in terms of cost, for the cost of doing an MRI, you can include an arthrotomy and a meniscal inspection and a cruciate inspection as part of your planned surgery. The knees, I mean, You can tell the knee is unstable from your physical examination, and with an unstable knee, surgery is generally indicated as the the treatment of choice to provide stability for for that patient so um, yes i'd be very happy to perform an mri if demanded by the owners but it's generally not one of my recommendations because we we can get all the information we need without going down that very costly route do, do people ask about MRIs? Yeah, if people, they, if people often have... come in, particularly people that have had a, a cruciate rupture themselves, yeah. um, and say, oh, my dog's coming, I've, my vet thinks he's torn his cruciate, uh, we'd like an MRI. And I explain to them I'm very happy to do the MRI, but I can save them twelve, fifteen hundred pounds by not doing the MRI and uh, still get to the same uh, diagnosis and treatment plan. But obviously, uh, it's, it's their choice in the end. Okay. And so the, is, there, is there any... Um, uh, disagree? No, not disagreement. That's be the wrong word. Is there is there any uh, evidence for and against sort of medically managing versus sort of surgical management mm. of uh, this? In, I suppose there's probably more of an argument for tincture of time than medically managing a cruciate rupture. Um, as we've said, it's generally a degenerative process. So if you think of the cruciate being a bundle of hundreds of thousands of fibres, as more of those fibres start to fray the knee becomes more unstable and more uncomfortable. Um, there's nothing wrong with saying, well, this, this, this dog is very early in the disease process, the knee is stable to palpation, we're going to give them a short course non-steroidals, control the exercise for a period of time, and then see if the animal can go back to, to normal exercise. My suspicion would be that at some point in the future, that dog is going to get to a stage where surgery is necessary to remain comfortable, and then the decision to either give them time symptomatic treatment in, in the form of exercise restriction and analgesics versus going straight for surgery is very much dependent on how, uh, how aggressive you want to treat the disease process. Um, and uh, I leave that entirely up to the owners, I'll be honest. Um, if a dog has a very unstable knee, I'll recommend surgery um, because a very unstable knee is unlikely to have many fibres left, so it's going to remain unstable and probably not going to settle down. Uh, if, the, if the knee is fairly rock solid in terms of resistance to cranial draw, then there's nothing wrong with the owners having some time to discuss at home potentially save up if, it's, if they're looking at costly surgery or just see if the dog actually needs surgery there and then. Um, but my suspicion is at some point these dogs are going to have surgery in the future, um, if possible. Is, it, is there a problem if you go in too early with uh, like a hemarthrosis or, or, or blood or just general inflammation causing a problem? Not that we appreciate or that I'm aware of. Um, one of the big reasons that I, I tend to be slightly more aggressive than... Uh, that I am with some other conditions in treatment of cruciates is that the the longer that a stifle is unstable, the longer that the menisci are at risk of damage. Now, the menisci acts as shock absorbers inside the knee, little cartilage pads that sit on the tibial plateau. When the knee is unstable and we get this cranial sublocation of the tibia, the, the caudal pole of particularly the medial meniscus is at risk of getting trapped and damaged. 
And if you've ever torn your meniscus yourself, uh, it is incredibly painful. And it's one of the reasons we see these dogs come in. They've had a bit of lameness for years, it, and then they go suddenly lame on a walk because they've torn their meniscus. Now, we know that damage to the meniscus or the need to remove the meniscus is associated with a slightly poorer outcome in terms of post-operative function. Um, so I'm quite aggressive in my treatment of these because I want to maintain those menisci intact if possible. Um, so I limit the time the knee is unstable for. Uh, and go go for surgery pretty sooner than I would with a different condition. So you, you mentioned uh, that the um, arthroscopy, so looking looking at the joint is mm -hmm. obviously uh, good. Is there anybody you know? You don't have to name the book. Sorry, mm -hmm. I suppose it, are people doing just arth um, arthroscopy and looking at the joint themselves yep. and, and not actually um, or, you know, minimally invasive mm -hmm. procedures? Yeah. So it's something that, that that we do not infrequently, um, not as frequently as I'd like. Um, Arthroscopy is a minimally invasive way of uh, inspecting the intra-articular structures, so you can go in with a camera uh, and with a, with a little probe, uh, that, that does increase your sensitivity. Um, have a look at the, the stasis of the crucial ligaments, you can inspect the cranial, usually the caudal if, if you can get in far enough, and then you can actually have a look at the menisci and probe the menisci to see if there's any damage there. Um, and if there's any doubt and the owners want to be super short, then we, we would certainly offer that as a, as a diagnostic tool. Um, I think probably one of the reasons it's not more commonly done is that arthrotomy is still a, it's a very easy procedure to do as part of your TPLO or your TTA or your lateral suture. Um, you, you're there. Um, it's, it's not, to my knowledge, associated with a poor outcome for the patient in this situation. The arthroscopy kit is fairly expensive to set up or to, to acquire, takes time to set up. Um, and is very uh, very user dependent and operator dependent in terms of your your ability to see everything. So, um, lots of general practitioners, um, lots of specialists are, are very very good and very very quick at an arthrotomy. Um, so it's actually a, a quicker and potentially if they're very good at it, a less traumatic way of evaluating the joint. Um, is there any scope. evidence to say that a that a scope might have more um, sensitivity to to detect damage or or not? So. As far as I'm aware, the most sensitive way of evaluating the menisci is with arthroscopy and a probe. Um, so you can actually prod and poke the menisci, see if you get a bucket handle tear coming forwards or anything along those lines. Um, and certainly it's something that we do we do offer. Um, most of the time, however, owners are very happy for us to go and have a quick look in the joint surgically rather than minimally invasively because we're likely to be cutting the tibia in half anyway. So um, a little camera in there doesn't appear to make a, a much of a difference in terms of the, the outcome for the patients. Fair enough. And so, so we get straight on to uh, probably going to be cutting the tibia anyway. So, so uh, I mean, the, the, there's a plethora of, uh, of different techniques to surgically stabilise uh, this, this disease. So, so w where are we now, do you think, and, and um, does the future hold anything, anything now? And, and, and is there a consensus of, of what might be the more appropriate and potentially what patients is that more appropriate on if there is you're absolutely right there are many 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 ways of of, of skinning a stifle um or skinning a cat or, or stabilizing a stifle um and most of the decision making in day-to-day -day practice general practice is based on surgeon preference uh, and surgeon ability um in general practice i was doing lateral sutures fairly happily um, and now I'm doing predominantly TPLOs, uh, the occasional TTA or a plateau levelling surgery. Generally we, I do more osteotomies than anything else. Uh, in terms of the evidence, um, we know that compared to lateral sutures over the top techniques and reconstructive procedures for the cruciate, 
um, osteotomies do have a, uh, a more reliable outcome um, and various papers would suggest that TPLIs are better than lateral sutures under certain, certain circumstances um, but generally in osteotomy there wasn't until recently there wasn't much difference between TTOs and TPLOs in terms of the outcome. There is now um, a suggestion that TPLOs do better in in the long term versus TTAs, uh, and that's personally why why I do TPLOs um, or closing wedges in a smaller dog. But I'm I'm still I'm not averse to putting a lateral suture into a small dog um, if, if 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 required by the owners or. Um, requested by the owners. So is that mainly financially the imperative or, or are there other other things? So, so does size matter? Like would a, um, a lateral suture just not be appropriate for, I don't know, a 20 kilo dog? Um, again, a lot of it is surgeon preference. Uh, my personal cutoff or recommendation is, is I get a bit uneasy putting lateral sutures into anything more than 15 kilos. Now, I, I, I'll be the first to admit that's probably not evidence-based. It's just my own uh, experience and, and the case that I've seen uh, and done myself. Um, I would be quite happy putting lateral suture into a very, very small dog. Um, I would prefer to do an osteotomy procedure. Um, and, and the reason for that is that I find them a little bit more reliable in terms of outcome, weight bearing and predictability. And some of the force plate studies do show that dogs weight bear quicker and better after an osteotomy rather than a, uh, a lateral suture. In terms of the cost, yeah, absolutely. A lateral suture is far cheaper than, than an osteotomy procedure. Um, however, when I've done a lateral suture and the suture has failed and they've come back for an osteotomy procedure, it then costs them far more. So it, it's not, although it is a cheaper option, it's, it's not necessarily going to be cheaper if, if it does require revision. And see, the, the force plate studies are getting dogs to walk along a, mm -hmm. a, a pressure mat to, to detect the pressure difference from what they normally walk at. But I suppose yeah. a lot of these dogs, they, they didn't have what they how they normally walked as, mm. yeah. as well, did they? So you're just looking at... Generally uh, symmetry. Okay. So symmetry between the left and right leg. And the aim with, with all the procedures is to get them back to a symmetrical uh, weight bearing on between the left and the right. There's, there's always a, a degree of disparity between the two, sort of a dominant side, uh, etc. But generally we're aiming to get them back to as near normal as possible um, one of the big things for myself in my decision making process is the reliability as i've touched on so uh, with a lateral suture you are placing a prosthetic typically piece of nylon uh, that is there to recreate the stability provided by the cruciate um, but that nylon doesn't last forever so eventually it stretches or it snaps and what we're relying on is the nylon holding the knee still for long enough that fibrous scar tissue forms and the dogs then rely on that fibrous scar tissue to maintain the stability in the knee going forwards. In my mind a bigger dog putting more force through the leg yes you can put bigger chunks of nylon in there but it's going to require a lot more scar tissue to maintain stability in the, to maintain stability in that knee when that ligament or when the, the nylon finally gives up the ghost. Uh, I'd much rather rely on a piece of three and a half mil thick stainless steel for ongoing stability uh, than a, a piece of nylon but Again, it's it's heavily biased by my preferences. And so, with the the dogs that have a degenerative sort of condition of mm -hmm. their of their stifle, but they but the very nature here, if they've if they've um, had a problem with one stifle and then put the pressure on the other on the contralateral limb, does that mean that it's inevitable that they're going to come back? It's not inevitable, um, but we certainly we talk about or something. I will talk about with my owners is that unfortunately, sixty percent of dogs that have evidence of stifle effusion on their X-rays or some degree of instability or discomfort in their stifle on their good leg um, will go on to 
typically require surgery within two years. So it's 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 there. It's it it's not always a bilateral condition, but often when we do the X-rays of the contralateral limb as part of our workup, we can see some effusion there, or we can palpate some instability or palpate stifle effusion. Um, I'm very quick to let the to warn the owners that the other side may be brewing um, and maintaining a lean body weight, maintaining consistent controlled exercise may well slow or decrease the risk of that happening or tearing in the future but uh, it's something to watch out for unfortunately and uh, and what what role do we do we do we know about sort of rehabilitation and physiotherapy and 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 how much is that getting more pushed now or mm -hmm. more more out so i think rehabilitation centers and the availability of physiotherapy veterinary physiotherapists veterinary hydrotherapy centers are fantastic um it's certainly becoming far more common to have um, animals that have been for, for these sessions before coming to see us and certainly we're, we're setting far more um, for rehabilitation after the surgeries. Um, in terms of the benefits there's actually limited evidence um, that they are definitely beneficial um, and I, I assume a lot of the, the recommendations are extrapolated from human medicine where I believe a lot of cruciates now are, or cruciate ruptures are now uh, managed with physiotherapy, trying to s strengthen the support around the stifle, trying to avoid surgery. Um, I'm not sure if that will be possible in, in veterinary species because obviously we can't instruct them that carefully as to what they can and can't do, uh, but certainly it does play a, play a role in our, our attempts to get these dogs back to function quicker. Um, and I know that we are looking to do a study here where we're comparing dogs that have hydrotherapy and physiotherapy after TPLOs and seeing how much of a difference actually makes their recovery time and their, their, their well, outcome. Mm, that, that sounds really good. Um, and what, 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 is the, what does the future hold? So if we're kind of happy, or, or, or surgeons, if they're kind of happy, I'm sure it's the same thing with any vets, right? You, they're all going to have their own disagreements. But uh, if TPLAs are the thing that maybe there's some evidence, is there, is there anything else being, being pushed now coming up in the pipeline? And, and also I just wondered if there's anything about the meniscus themselves. Is there, is there anything about uh, um, uh, you know, any... any not necessarily supplements, but anything to actually help them mm. menisci get better? So um, I think the big limitation in, in, with, with veterinary is the, the diversity of the patients we see. Um, I know that in people, meniscal repair, meniscal um, debridement um, and suturing is, is, is fairly commonplace. And I know that in, in veterinary it's, it was tried, I believe, but the, the outcomes weren't as good. And I think they are, that's probably because they're separate disease processes. Now, where I think veterinary has made leaps and bounds is where we, we follow on the coattails of, of the human medics, whereby we can extrapolate their findings to, to help with our uh, ongoing research and, uh, and improving our care for our patients. I, unfortunately, because the disease processes are quite different between the species in that humans tend to go acutely um, because of a, a force or a trauma, whereas canines have a degenerative issue, we're not going to get that benefit from, from the human medics. Um, in terms of revelations, every few years a new, pro a new product, new procedure comes around. Uh, I'm yet to f see evidence for one that is groundbreaking or going to change everything that we do. So I think we are refining what we know and refining the techniques that we've got already. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it would be fantastic if, if a wonder drug comes out that repairs the meniscus or repairs the cruciate or reverses the degenerative process. Uh, if, it, yeah, if it happens, someone will make an absolute fortune from it. Um, but for the time being, I think we're we're sort of 
we're working on what we've got uh, and trying to make those procedures as smooth and as uh, reliable as possible. Excellent. Do you think we've uh, we've missed anything out, Dave, about uh, about cruciate disease? I think we've probably covered most most of the, the cruciate side of things that I discussed with with my veterinary students and with the owners in the consultation room. So that's probably probably most of the. Well, it covers it covers most of my uh, my questions as well. But it's good to know that uh, that we're, we're probably refining a, a, a you know better techniques rather than having a bit more evidence sort of for that, which is which is which is great rather than a multitude of different surgeries and and not a lot of evidence. Yeah. Um, but many thanks for your time today, Dave, and uh, thank you for coming on on the podcast and and thank you for for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Um, many thanks for for your for your time uh, taken to download and listen to this podcast. If you could leave us a review, if you could pop to Apple uh, Podcasts and leave us a review um, on iTunes, Acast, um, then that would be great. Um, if you have any any questions, you can either email me dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk um, or tweet uh, at Don Barfield. We'll put a, a few sort of show notes about uh, crucial disease um, on the on the web pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast, it should be top of the tree. Um, many thanks. Until next time, bye bye.